We're pressing pause on our Exodus series. Uh, We will come back to it next summer. Today, we are returning to our series in the book of Kings. Now, last year, we preached on the life of Solomon and the building of the temple. And then we saw the kingdom divided with Jeroboam taking power in the northern kingdom, which will be known as Israel, and Solomon's son Rehoboam retaining control of the southern kingdom, which will be known as Judah. As we pick up this series again, we're skipping forward a few chapters and a few kings. We're going to focus on the northern kingdom for a little while here. Now, there was a king in Israel, the northern kingdom, named Omri, who consolidated the power of the north, and he established a dynasty that was well known in the ancient world. He's the one who set up the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom, in the city of Samaria. And he's also known for making an alliance with the Sidonians, Phoenicians, to the west by an arranged marriage between his son Ahab and the princess of Sidonia, Jezebel. Ahab takes the throne of Israel after his father's death, and the Bible devotes a lot of attention to the reign of Ahab and to the influence of Jezebel in Israel. And at this point, Scripture also introduces us to the prophet Elijah. And over the next few weeks, we will see God's dealing with Ahab and Jezebel through the ministry of Elijah. Today we are in 1 Kings 17. Before we begin, let me pray for us. Living God, you ask much of your people, and yet you provide all that you ask in your Son, Jesus Christ. Provide us open hearts and ears as we hear the story of Elijah. Show us your provision. Show us your love. Grant us faith to respond. We ask in the name of the resurrected Son. Amen. As we enter into the story of kings, we find that King Omri and his son Ahab had already been worshiping gods other than Yahweh. But Ahab has now married the Sidonian princess Jezebel, and Jezebel brings her pagan god Baal and 400 of his prophets to Israel with her. And Ahab is more than happy to set them all up and bankroll their idolatry. But in response to this idolatry in the northern kingdom, Yahweh removes his presence from the kingdom of Israel. He sends his prophet Elijah to Ahab, and Elijah tells Ahab, As Yahweh the God of Israel lives, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So Yahweh removes his hand of blessing and provision from the kingdom of Israel. Now, it's important to note here that Baal was considered the god of storms. We have stories from outside of the Bible that describe Baal as one who waters the earth and who provides bread. He is the one who defeats the forces of death and famine. So what we have here in 1 Kings is that we see Yahweh going to war with the false gods of the Canaanites just as he went to war with the gods of Egypt in the book of Exodus. So Yahweh says to Israel, you want to depend on Baal, God of storms and rain? Let's see how that works out for you. No dew or rain until my prophet says so. And he sends Elijah to the desert. And there he miraculously provides food and water for him, just as he provided for the Exodus generation when they were in the wilderness. 
But Ahab's kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, is plunged into drought and famine over the next few years. We pick up the story in 1 Kings 17. There in verse 8, Yahweh calls to his prophet once again. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Now, remember, Sidon is where Queen Jezebel comes from. So Yahweh is asking Elijah to go into Baal's territory. Well, Baal has invaded Israel. Let's invade his territory. See how he likes it, right? Again, this is a war of the gods. And where better to hide Elijah from Jezebel than in her own country? God already has a welcoming committee set up, apparently. He prepares a table for Elijah in the presence of his enemies. God tells him, behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. And so Yahweh commands Elijah, arise, go to Zarephath. What does Elijah do? Verse 10, he arose and went to Zarephath. When Yahweh speaks, the man of God obeys. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Now, it's a seemingly harmless request, fully in keeping with ancient hospitality practices. But it seems God is asking of the widow more than she can give. Listen to her heartbreaking tale. And she said, as Yahweh your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Can you imagine baking a loaf of bread knowing it will be the last meal your family ever eats? It's a hopeless situation. This is Yahweh's provision for the man of God. This is his meal ticket. Think about the widow. The last thing she needs is a house guest, another mouth to feed, she must be thinking, I don't even have enough to care for my own family. How can you expect me to provide for you? It would be so much easier if God only asked for the portion that we were willing and able to give. But the hard reality of dealing with the sovereign God who has created us, who has given us life, who has given us everything we have, the hard reality is that He can ask anything of us. God is asking both Elijah and the widow to walk by faith and not by sight. He is asking them to trust him to provide in a seemingly impossible situation. So what would you do if you were Elijah standing before this widow and hearing her story? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize. I couldn't possibly impose on you in this state. There, there must be some mistake. There's got to be some other widow around here. Now, actually, there were plenty of other starving widows around. Jesus tells us that in today's gospel reading. He says, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. 
Jesus says this, as you heard in our gospel reading, he says this when he's being rejected by the people of his own hometown. And he points out that God didn't send Elijah to the widows of his chosen people, Israel, did he? God has abandoned Israel because of their idolatry. Remember, Ahab and Israel have chosen Baal as their God. Let Baal feed the Israelite widows. And so God does no mighty work among the Israelite widows, just as Jesus could do no mighty work among the people of his hometown who had rejected him. So following our Lord's interpretation of this story, we should see it as a sign of God's judgment against Israel. He did not go to the widows in Israel. But also, God did not send Elijah to any other starving widows in Zarephath or the land of Sidon. No, God sent Elijah to this widow, the one who doesn't have any food. And Elijah believed that Yahweh knew what he was doing. So how does Elijah respond to this hopeless situation? Verse 13, And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent. And the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that Yahweh sends rain upon the earth. (laughs) Now, he not only asks for what little she has left, but he asks her to serve him first. Now, this is her son's life we're talking about. But Elijah listens to the word of God, even when it seems ridiculous. What sort of faith is being asked of this woman? God often asks his people to put the needs of others above their own. And here he calls this woman to trust him and to give what little she has, what she had been saving for her family, and serve it to the man of God. So this will require great faith from the widow as well. Look at verse 15. And she went and did as Elijah said. Maybe she figures, hey, it's not going to hurt anything. We're going to starve to death anyway. Might as well share it with this prophet. Or maybe she wants to believe that Yahweh, the God of Israel, can save her. Maybe he will provide where Baal has failed. Whatever the reason... The widow obeys the call of God with great faith. So Elijah obeys Yahweh. The widow obeys Elijah. What happens when God's people take him at his word? And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of Yahweh that he spoke by Elijah. As we saw him do so many times when the Exodus generation was wandering in the wilderness, Yahweh miraculously provides for those who trust in him. In the midst of famine, God brings food. He has gone into the land of Baal and he has done what Baal could not do. He has brought life where there was only death. Yahweh is not some impotent God of wood or stone. Yahweh is the God who controls even the dew on the grass. 
Yahweh is the God who controls even the flower in the jar. Yahweh is the God of Israel, of Sidon, of the world. The message for this widow, for the Sidonians, and for the people of Israel is that Yahweh is the true God, the only God worth trusting in, the only God who can ask for such great faith. So here's the question for us. Do you trust this God? Do you trust Him enough to keep dipping your hand into the flower jar even when you're positive there's nothing left? When you wake up with the same pains we had the day before and we, we haven't slept a wink. When our workday was exhausting and then we come home to all the demands of our family and friends and neighbors. When our patience has vanished because the kids are driving us up the wall. When our love for our brothers and sisters starts to fail because they are not loving us. Do we have faith to keep giving ourselves anyway? At that moment when it becomes clear to us that we have nothing left to offer, when we are down to the last crumb and God asks for the last crumb, will we still trust that God can use us, that God can provide in spite of our weakness or better yet, through our weakness? The Bible says there's strength in our weakness. It's God's strength. But in our sin, we often fear that weakness so much that we aren't willing to live in it, to move into the weakness and let God provide. Here in our story, God has asked for more than these people thought they could give, but God has provided for the man of God. He has provided for the widow. He has provided for her son, Still, a sovereign God can ask for anything, and a sovereign God can ask for everything. The testing is not yet finished. Some time elapses, and then we have verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Do you realize that sometime God works in this way too? He, he starts by asking you for more than you think you can give, but by His grace you're able to give it anyway, and you think everything is good. It worked out. Then you find out that God can actually ask you for everything you have. A sovereign God can ask you for everything you hold dear. The widow's son gets sick and he just dies. There's no long drawn out ordeal. There's no cherished last meal together. He just dies. And she responds the way many of us would. Verse 18, she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. I gave you all the food we had when we didn't have enough. Wasn't that enough? This is the way we often look at things in our pain, isn't it? We think God makes us suffer because of something we've done or something we've neglected to do. But remember the message of Job. God tests those he loves, and he promises to raise them in the end. 
Does it kind of seem like the widow has forgotten that this same son was good as dead a few days ago? Yahweh already saved him once. But this pain is more unbearable than the first. Why? Because now she has had to watch her son die. She held him in her arms as he took his last breath. She felt the life leave him. You can't prepare yourself for that. It's the most real thing you'll ever experience. When the food was running out, at least she knew that they would die together. But now, just as the possibility of a future for her family was brimming on the horizon, her son is ripped out of the picture and she faces that future alone. Will she continue to trust Yahweh? So God is put to the test once again. He has journeyed into Baal's territory and he brought bread in the midst of famine. But now we're not at war with an idol of stone. Now we are at war with the God of death, the real enemy. Can God cross into death's territory and bring life from the grave? The man of God steps out in faith. Look at verse 19. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. We've talked about this before. The upper rooms are significant in Scripture. Man has to ascend into God's presence. And so Elijah ascends to pray. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Elijah's crying out as well. I know what I would be thinking if I was in Elijah's place. First, you made me ask them to share their last meal. Now this? You're asking too much, God. But notice, Elijah's not focused on what God is asking of him. He is focused on asking something of God. And as the ancients always did, he uses his whole body in prayer. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. Why does he do it three times? I don't know, but throughout Scripture, the number three is associated with death and resurrection. He stretches himself out over the child as a way of identifying with him. Notice this. He has brought the child into his room. He has laid the child on his bed. And now Elijah stretches his body out, laying upon the child, his shaking hands grasping the boy's cold hands, his eyes staring into his blank eyes, his heart pounding against the boy's unmoving chest, his gasping lungs breathing into the boy's lifeless lips. He identifies himself with the child. It's an enacted prayer. It means, let this boy be as I am, living and breathing. Let my life go into him. I've already asked you to sustain life, Lord. Now I'm asking you for more. I'm asking you for resurrection. Clearly, this would be asking too much of Baal. He can't even make it rain. But is it asking too much of Yahweh? Verse 22 and the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. We have a really interesting parallel here. Earlier, Yahweh commanded Elijah to come here to see the widow. And Elijah listened to Yahweh and obeyed his voice. Here, Elijah commands Yahweh and Yahweh obeys. 
I know it might sound wrong to say that, but that's what happens, isn't it? This is part of what it means to be a prophet. And this is the way Scripture shows it, is that God actually brings His prophets into His divine counsel. They advise Him, and He acts according to their advice. Now, this doesn't undermine God's sovereignty. I don't know how He works the requests of His people into His foreordained plan for history, but He does. That's the way the Bible presents it. God is pleased to act according to the requests of His prophets. What does this mean? It means we should take prayer seriously. When Christians pray in the name of Jesus Christ, we are praying through the true prophet. And that means God takes our requests into consideration and he acts in light of them. Now, I know it doesn't seem like that most of the time. That's what the Bible teaches and we obey in faith. The Apostle John says, This is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. When the man of God prays, God acts. When the people of God pray, God acts. Verse 22 And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. Your son lives. What good news for this family, for this widow. This is a gospel. After he asked of his people more than they could give. Yahweh himself crossed over into the territory of death and brought new life. The Israelites in exile hundreds of years after this would listen to this story of Elijah and they would be reminded that geographical boundaries and national apostasy cannot deter the resurrecting power of God. Israel had died. God's son Israel had died in their exile. But God would bring them to life once again. He would triumph over the false gods of their captors, and He is the God over death. He is the God of resurrection. Now I realize I have said some things in this sermon that are frightening. It's frightening to me, though I know it to be true. I have said that God can ask anything of us. And that he may ask us for more than we are willing to give. And at times, God may ask us for more than we are able to give. If God is God, creator and owner of all things, there is nothing that can be withheld from him. He owns our loved ones. He owns our possessions. He owns us. He owns everything. There is nothing he cannot ask of us because it's all his. The God of the Bible never promises insulation from risk or protection from loss. He's not an insurance agent. God never promises that his children will not suffer and die. I've heard Christians say that God never gives you more than you can handle. You won't find that anywhere in the Bible. I'm here to tell you that God certainly can give you more than you can handle. 
But the Bible tells us that God will not give you more than He can handle. Because God has taken all of our fallen creation in hand, all sin and death, and He has handled them in His Son, Jesus Christ. What can Jesus not handle? Temptation? Sin? Disappointment? Doubt? Fear? Rejection? Suffering? Did our Lord not face all these things in His incarnation? The Bible says He did. But what about the biggest ask? What about the last and final request? What about death? Is that asking too much from Jesus? Can He provide life in the face of death? That's what we come here each week to celebrate. It's why we meet on Sunday, the day of Easter, the day of the resurrection, because Jesus handled death. And with it, he handled the ultimate source of all of our fears and all of our failings. Just as Elijah took this lifeless boy, Jesus took our sinful flesh up in his arms. He carried it up in his own body. Just as the man of God in our story stretched himself out over the dead boy, so did Jesus stretch himself out on the cross. He identified with all humanity in our death. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He breathed out his spirit when he died, and he breathed it into the lifeless lips of the sons of Adam that we might live again. The Father asked everything of Jesus, everything. And Jesus gave it gladly because of his great love for us. And three days later, he rose. Your son lives. That's the gospel. And he has taken humanity into his upper room, his throne room, from which he reigns and from which he says he will come again. Christ Jesus provided life when all we had to offer was death. And he continues to provide. He gives us life from a jar that shall never be spent. Abundant life from a jug that will never run empty. Because he gives us his body and blood, his everlasting life, which can never die and will never end. So it is by the grace given us in Jesus Christ that we trust God when He asks for more than we are able to give. Because it's not our lives that we are giving. It is the abundant and eternal life of Christ that dwells within us. Just when you think you're reaching into an empty bowl, you find the life of Christ there. When you surrender yourself to weakness, you find the strength of Christ there. Brothers and sisters, believe me when I say this. Sometimes God asks of you more than you can give. And sometimes God asks you for everything you have. And I would be the last one to say that I'm okay with that. Or that's an easy reality to face. But the Bible calls us to believe that God first gave us all he had in his son Jesus. And it calls us to believe that this risen son is infinitely more than anything we could ever ask for. And it calls us to believe that he can handle all that has ever been asked of him, even death itself. And that when God finally asks us for our last breath, 
he will also raise us up to be like him. Let's pray. Living God, you who provide so many blessings to us, you who have provided for our greatest and deepest need, we ask you to help us to trust you, particularly when we're scraping at the bottom of the jar of our lives. We don't believe that you can or will provide. Help us to look to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Help us to trust that he is with us and that in him our weakness is actually strength. Let us find in him all our provision. We cry to you in the name of the risen Son. Amen.